This is the Quantum Tech Pod, brought to you by Inside Quantum Technology, covering industry analysis, data, and market forecasting for quantum technology markets worldwide. Now, here's your host, Christopher Bishop. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Quantum Tech Pod. I'm delighted you're listening. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you are on the planet. I'm delighted to introduce my guest today, Peter Chapman. He's the president and CEO of INQ. Peter has over 40 years of leadership in software engineering. He began his career at age 16, working with Marvin Minsky and Seymour Papert at the MIT Artificial Intelligence Lab. After founding and successfully selling a few startups in the 80s and 90s, Peter came out of early retirement to help build tools for the blind at the helm of Ray Kurzweil's company, KNFB Reading Technologies. Before joining INQ, Peter was Director of Engineering for Amazon Prime. His lifelong interest in AI is one of the reasons he joined INQ. Peter believes that quantum computing might play an important role in solving artificial general intelligence and, as a result, help us address many other important problems facing mankind. Peter's company, INQ, has transformed quantum computing from a theoretical concept into a tangible option for innovative enterprises. This year, INQ's universal quantum computers will provide a path to business value by solving difficult subsets of problems in entirely new ways. The company's trapped ion technology is poised to drive innovation in material science, drug discovery, as well as advancements in artificial intelligence and much more. So welcome, Peter, and thanks for joining me. Oh, thanks. Uh, Thanks for having me. Peter, I always like to start the podcast by asking my guests to share a bit about their own personal quantum journey. So I certainly provided some high-level background in my intro remarks, but I want to ask you to please share more details. And my objective, honestly, is twofold, to give our audience more specifics about the interesting things you did before you joined INQ, but also to orient listeners more broadly to the fact that there are many ways and various paths people have taken to get into the field of quantum information science. So if you could please share a bit about your background and your past so far, certainly where you grew up maybe where you went to school and what you studied. I'd love to hear more info about working with Marvin Minsky at MIT. Wow. Um, and any additional insight into startups you founded as well as various companies where you worked? Probably need another whole podcast. <laughs> well, I know, school. I do. So I'm actually to be, this is the Reader's <laughs> Digest version. Okay. Um, so, you know, I, I had the most unusual childhood. Um, you know, boy, we were in trouble. We're going all the way back to, you know, when I was a little kid because my dad was um, – a scientist astronaut in the 1960s. And, you know, in the 1960s, astronauts were, you know, the Taylor Swifts in comparison to today. Yes. And and so, uh, matter of fact, you know, my dad would be uh, used to, you know, go overseas to represent America in official, you know, government proceedings and stuff. They were ambassadors for the for the United States. Yeah, um, and so it was a very unusual childhood compared to to most because you know I went to every launch in the you know for NASA. Um, oh man! You know, as a kid, and um, you know, as an example of the kind of uh, things which we take for granted today. But in I think in 1958, the Aqualung was um, developed by uh, Cousteau. Yes. And, you know, somewhere in the mid 1960s, um, you know, they, my dad would bring home scuba tanks and we had a pool in our backyard. And that was a really unusual thing to have in the 1960s because they had just been invented not too long before that. Yeah. And so, um, 
So the, you know, I was kind of the, the cool kid in the neighborhood because if you came over to my house, we were going to spend our playtime underwater in the, in the pool. I'd say, and, wow. You know, so now it's funny nowadays, it's not, it's not as, as exciting as everyone, you know, can easily do that. Peter, where but was they, it? Where did you go up? Not to interrupt you, but. Well, no, uh, at the time Where'd my dad, uh, as an astronaut was down at the Johnson space center. Mm-hmm. So down in Houston. Yeah. And so we had um, a little house that um, uh, in Nassau Bay. And again, a little bit of the craziness. Um, in those early days, every astronaut had his own little um, fighter jet, a uh, T-38, a Talon. And you were required as a NASA astronaut to spend 20 hours uh, a week flying because they felt that, you know, flying was the thing that was closest to to. Uh, the joystick was was very similar to piloting a uh, a rocket, and um, but it was also the time before cell phones and before two cars in every family. So what would happen is my dad would um, come over the house and go supersonic, which would produce a a sonic boom, and that was to let my my mom and us know that it's time to go to the Air Force Base to pick him up. So everyone, you know, in fifteen blocks in every direction knew. Then my dad wanted to get picked up because it was like a like a clap of lightning in a bright blue day. What a and great I was like, story. What, what the heck was that? <laughs> what a so, great story! Wow. <laughs> so it, it was, and and you know during these period, um, because my dad was a science fiction uh, a science fiction person who loved to read that, we knew all the kind of the science fiction people of the day, and so you know as an example, uh, Arthur C. Clarke. Um, has been over to the house probably, I don't know, 30 times or something. So when I was a kid, so it was just growing up in an unusual environment. I'd say, you know, it's just, you know, you're just hard to explain to anyone else. Um, You know, I think before I was 16, I went to the white house for dinner. So, you know, most people, you know, didn't get a, didn't get those opportunities, but I did, but it also, you know, was it, you know, it was such an unusual time. I mean, kind of, you know, it's that same probably problem of, you know, children of celebrities. And in my particular one, it was a science, you know, celebrity. Yeah. So a little bit different. Um, so, uh, and and as a result, you know, I, I had probably more opportunities. I think um, when I was roughly 15 or 16, my dad had, had just gotten the first overhead pictures from satellites um, from geospatial. And he came home in these kind of like two foot by two foot uh, photographs and of, you know, of the Arctic. And he, he came down and he said, you know, for the first time you can see these things, you know, from space and most of it is unexplored and we have an opportunity to go name a mountain. And, but, you know, in 20 years, everyone's going to know, you know, kind of everything about the earth. So, you know, let's go do it now. So we put together a little expedition to fly to the Arctic Circle and go name, you know, a mountain, a glacier, and a lake. Wow. And, so, you know, so, and it just, it was a crazy, it was a crazy childhood. A great so one. How, how do you end I mean, up at MIT, though? Myron Minsky is sort of a legend for our listeners who may or may not know. That's a name you should look up if you're not familiar with him. But how it's, it, again, it's a tie to my dad. Um, is there's a couple of things. One is I was not a great student in high school. And so my dad felt I, I wasn't challenged enough. And, um, and also it's probably this, this crazy background, right? I mean, you know, one, one day you're over at the, um, 
you know, over at NASA watching really interesting experiments, and then you're coming back to, you know, kind of out of high school and, and doing something that seems kind of childish in comparison. And so, you know, I just wanted to go faster. And so my dad uh, called, he knew Marvin. And I think Marvin at the time was um, the national science advisor to the president. And, um, and he said, hey, I've got this, you know, child that's looking to, to be um, challenged more. And, you know, what do you think if he came over to the AI lab and, you know, helped out? So that's how I got, I got there. Yeah. And um, my high school agreed to take um, credits from MIT. <laughs> I would hope so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so I went down and worked at the AI lab, um, which was at the time like Willy Wonka's, you know, kind of place for technology. And in particular, the things early on that I worked on was um, Logo. Um, this early, what was intended to be AI programming language, we were teaching uh, little floor robots. You know, I got to remember this is in the mid-1970s. They look mm -hmm. kind of like um, a little bit more jury-rigged Roombas at the uh -huh. time. Wow. And we were teaching them to go through mazes. And that was the AI problem that we were working. Now you have mm -hmm. to remember, I think we were in 8K of memory and right. using a PDP-8 and a PDP-11, which, um, you know, it was very primitive uh, computers. Um, yeah. And we, we managed to, you know, to write algorithms to do that. And then it turns out that Logo then went on, you know, if, uh, probably many of your listeners, if you're a software engineer, Many young software engineers today learn to program in Logo in elementary school. And, and it's because that language um, turned out not to really be used for AI, but instead was used in, in uh, elementary schools to teach kids about early computers. Yeah. And so um, every, you know, every week I meet somebody who says, oh, hey, I, I learned to program. My first thing I learned to program was in Logo. Yeah. It's pretty cool. So we can certainly talk more about, I mean, I'd love to hear more about Recurse File and other, other companies we work. So maybe that's another podcast, but I want to, I want to ask you about IonQ, right? Let's talk about where you are now. And so who founded it? Where and when was it set up? Like what's the, who? Um, there is nothing normal about IonQ and, and I'll explain that. Okay. Um, normally what happens is, um, you have some people that have an idea and they go chase VCs. They put together a business plan. They go see a bunch of VCs, you know, a very standard process that everyone yeah. knows. Yeah. Um, INQ didn't do that. Instead, um, there was two uh, university professors, Chris and, and Jung Sang, at both Duke and the University of Maryland. And they wrote back in, I think it was 2015, a paper, that uh, a scientific paper, that was talking about how to build a scalable quantum computer, and that got published. And one of the uh, principals over at NEA, at the time one of the largest venture capital uh, firms in the in the world, for some reason was um, was was reading scientific papers, and he read Chris and Jung Sang's paper, and he said, from his point of view, this sounded like a great business plan. And so he approached, so we had the VCs approach, you know, the, the two college professors to say, I think we should go start a company and we're willing to put up the initial money. 
That's so sort of backwards from the standard. Yeah, so backwards, exactly. <laughs> so it's not that it's again, it's not that normal thing. And then um really the you know, NEA then went out and got um Google and Amazon to come in in that first round and kind of at the very beginning of starting up the the company. So it was entirely backwards um from the normal process. And um so so that's kind of how the company got started. Um and you know, we were off, off and running after that. Yeah. So I want to talk about Qubit. So we're all aware, you know, there's sort of six to seven different Qubit modalities in the landscape being explored, depending on how you count them or whatever. Um, I want to ask you why trapped ions make better Qubits than other approaches? So better is, is probably in the context of time. And I'll explain that. Um, so, you know, if you if you were to say to me 50 years from now as to what will be maybe um, the best qubit, then it might not be trapped ions. That, you know, maybe um, these topological qubits actually might be much better in 50 years. Yeah. The, the question really is, in, in, I'll, I'll change your, your question, what makes trapped ions in the near term better qubits than other approaches. Yeah, good. Okay, because um, if you ask me 10 or 15 or 20 years from now, it might not be trapped ions. It might be one of these other approaches. But in the near term, for the next five, probably 10 years, it's probably trapped ions. And so the reason for that is um, there's kind of qubits fall into two broad categories, uh, man-made qubits and, you know, all-natural um all natural qubits. And what do I mean by that? Um, so in, in our case, you know, the qubit that we're using is an ion and, you know, we don't make ions. We don't make atoms. They're not a man-made process. Um, and they're all perfectly identical in, within an atomic species. And so there is no yield. There is no manufacturing problems. It's, they're all hundred percent perfect. And that sense, it gives us this, this advantage. Now, there are other natural um, qubits, I mean, photons and neutral atoms and a number of other things, but the, each one of those has a bunch of physics problems they still need to work through. And trapped ions, its history comes from uh, atomic clocks, which is a relatively mature technology. Um, and so if you really look at what we're doing, it's really an atomic clock. And so that's a that's a technology. As a matter of fact, you know, um, one of our co-founders did the first quantum logic gates when he was at NIST working on atomic clocks, and that was back in 1995. Yeah. And awesome. today, an atomic clock, is, you know, fits in a chip, and you know, can be put onto a PCB for all sorts of applications. So it's a it's a mature technology. If you look at the man-made qubits, so these would be things like uh, the superconducting. Well, um, you know, those need to, you know, I think the estimate is a single qubit has 10 to the 14 atoms to make up one qubit. And you need, you know, an, you need every one of those atoms to be identical to every other qubit. And so we just don't yet really have that kind of um, manufacturing prowess as a species. And so there you're seeing that the qubits are different from one qubit to the next. They're kind of um, plagued by the yield problems and the the fact that they're they're still working to make their 
their qubits themselves better, where on our side, the yield is at 100% and the, the qubits themselves are perfect. Now, sometimes people don't like when, when we say they're perfect because they confuse the difference between you know, um, uh, average two qubit gate fidelity and the actual qubits. But if you look at our qubits, not, not the gates that come from it, but the qubits, they really are perfect in the sense that the yield is 100%. Yeah. And so that gives us this big advantage. And trapped ions in general, not just at INQ, but at you know many university labs around the world, have shown that they can have the highest um, gate fidelities compared to anyone else, which in the short term means that um, you can run the largest programs on uh, a trapped ion system compared to any other technology. Yeah. And sure enough, that's what we see in the in the commercial marketplace. Yeah. No, thank you for sharing that perspective. That that's very enlightening and informative. Appreciate it. Let's talk about the fact that you're a public company. So in March 2021, INQ became the first pure play hardware and software company in the quantum computing space to go public. They emerged with a SPAC, right? Uh, DMY Technology Group to accomplish this. And what was seen at the time is quite a bold move. So tell me a bit about the factors that drove you to become a publicly traded company at the time, and then maybe, you know, challenges and opportunities that it represents. You know, the challenge, obviously, in um, not just at INQ, but many of these deep tech companies, is that there was an opportunity to go public, but um, there wasn't significant revenues yet. You know, normally, kind of the normal thing is, is a company gets to about $100 million in recognized revenue. And then you can start thinking about going public. But the SPACs allowed you to kind of go to the public market early uh, before you'd achieve those things. And, you know, that was a, it's a risk return kind of thing. Um, you know, when you force kind of companies to be more mature, especially in the current market, then it usually, I mean, the public doesn't have access to those things. And so the only ones who get the advantage of early companies is usually venture capitalists. And so the VCs are, you know, making quite a lot of money uh, in aggregate because they are investing in a company in that kind of growing to a hundred million. But it's a risky market. I mean, you know, traditionally, you know, VCs have, you know, a few, you know, hit mega hits and then lots of, of failure. So this in some sense was the SPAC um, thing was allowing kind of private investors to to come into where VCs are. But, you know, it is it isn't, um, you know, SPACs in general are, are earlier in their life cycle. And so it means that they have higher risk. Um, and so for INQ, um, it, you know, when we took the company public, um, we put together an aggressive roadmap, both in terms of technical progress, but also sales. Because when we took the company public, we had no sales. And so um, while we have started off small, we've managed to hit exactly, you know, and exceed significantly what we told uh, investors when we went public as to what we can do. And of course, you know, we hope to continue, knock on wood, to do that into the future. That, that really is kind of, you know, as compared to other, other companies that went public the same way, what, often what they did is they put together a rosy picture for their future and haven't managed to deliver on that promise and have been punished in the market um, place. And, you know, to, to some degree, SPACs have managed to get a bad name as a result. 
But INQ is very different in the sense that we told the marketplace what we were going to do on, you know, prior to the IPO, and we've been doing exactly what it is and exceeding exactly what we said we were going to do. Yeah, well, that's a per- perfect segue into my next question. Speaking of roadmap, or whatever, um, the fact that last week you announced that you were opening the first quantum computing manufacturing facility in the U.S. in a suburb of Seattle, right? And there, I guess this is going to be your second quantum data center and will provide cloud access to INQ customers and also be your primary production and engineering location in the U.S. So speaking of roadmap, tell me how this came about, why Seattle maybe, and more broadly, how this is going to expand INQ's portfolio or capabilities? Um, well, a couple of things. One is um, uh, we ran out of space. We, the, we have two primary locations, which is in College Park and now in Seattle. Um, we'd run out of space to put more quantum computers in College Park. So we knew we had to expand just to be able to build more. And um, so that kind of drove, well, where should we do it? And the Seattle area, um, you know, because of the big tech companies and Boeing is a good location for, you know, obviously for people like software engineers and such, but also for the kinds of people we need, um, you know, mechanical engineers and, and machinists and all the other things that are needed to build a, uh, a product, electrical engineers and such. So all those things are sitting there because of the, you know, aerospace, um, you know, needs and and now increasingly with people like Blue Origin, you know, now for building rockets. Yeah. The other issue is Seattle is um, some of our partners are are Google, Microsoft, and and Amazon, and you know their cloud divisions are happen to be in Seattle, and for some for two out of the three their quantum groups are in Seattle, and so there's you know that was interesting to us as well. Yeah. Um, I will talk just a little bit about. Um, the, the push to manufacturing, all quantum computers, doesn't matter what their qubit modality is, they will get to a point where they can't put more qubits on a single chip. And now you'll need to have multiple chips, kind of the same way that we do blade servers in supercomputers today, classically. And you'll need to network them together. And so where INQ is, I think, different than everyone else today is in two fronts. One is um, First is we recognize this is the future. And when we talk about getting to scale, this is what everyone has to do. And so, um, and in addition, you know, future quantum computers might be made up of a bunch of blade servers. So they need to shrink and they need to get cheaper in every, in every iteration because they can't scale with today's costs. You, you know, a single quantum computer today is expensive. If in two years from now, I need 16 of them to make up, you know, to get to enough physical qubits to do error correction. Well, darn, I hope that the, the price in those two years is, is coming down by 15 sixteenths because yeah. otherwise these things are going to be too expensive. About half the company is working on um, building, you know, bigger and better uh, quantum computers. The other half is working on how do we make them smaller and cheaper and more easy to manufacture. And so, so that's, and I think we're ahead because I think we're the only company who's thinking about it and you can kind of see it. And, you know, our quantum computers are on a diet right now. You know, the uh, Forte Enterprise is eight racks. And, but if you look at Tempo, it'll be down to three. Yeah. So, so you know, 
is it getting smaller in every generation? So let's talk about the portfolio. I want to, you mentioned Forte Enterprise and Tempo. They're described as they're two rack mounted solutions that are going to be manufactured at your new facility and are designed for businesses and governments who want to integrate quantum capabilities into their existing infrastructure. So tell our listeners more about these two solutions and what each one brings to the market. Well, our first design goal is is that they should fit within a standard data center specifications. You know, we didn't want um, we don't want customers to have to build a special building to house our quantum computers. So um, they already have special buildings in some sense, which is what we call a data center today. And those things have standard specifications in terms of weight and size and electrical power and um, HVAC and humidity. And so we, you know, these next generation designs are all to fit within those standard specifications. You might need a data center, but you don't need a special one um, to be able to house our quantum computers. So that was kind of a a large goal um, Mm -hmm. in terms of of um, these systems. And so again, we don't want to come to you and say to a university, would you like to buy one of our computers? But, oh, by the way, you're going to have to put up a you know, $20 million building to be able to house it. That seemed right. like a non-starter for us. Yeah. So and things then- like, you know, vibration and, and all the things that you find in a real world data center are all being considered in terms of how we design these next systems. So that's certainly a major aspect. Um, and, you know, room temperature quantum computing. You should be able to have somebody, a technician, walk through the data center and not have the, the quantum computer go offline, right? Yeah. It, it can't be fragile. It needs to, you know, to work in a real world environment. And that's also required also, I mean, it, you know, if you look at prior, I think most quantum systems and certainly ours um, prior you know, they were kind of um, fragile. And so they were kind of these academic experiments that were being productized. But now what we're doing is working towards actually, you know, turning them into a product where, yeah. you know, they look, they actually, you know, sadly, I think our our future quantum systems will look quite boring. <laughs> well, that's a, great, a very smart solution. Thank you for sharing that perspective. Just to drill down once more into the portfolio, I read in preparing for our conversation that October last year, you signed a $25 million deal to build two barium-based ion quantum computers for the Air Force Research Lab, AFRL, up in Rome, New York. Um, I found this very interesting because these computers, according to the press release, will primarily be used to develop quantum networks and applications rather than specifically for computation. So tell me about this project. Actually, you're working with our mutual friend, Michael Hayduck, up there. Yeah, so um, quantum networking is, is, you know, there's kind of two aspects to it. Uh, one of it is for quantum communication and another is for quantum computing. And um, so I'll say a little bit about the computing side is you can build a quantum network, which I was alluding to kind of, you know, how when you need to get more qubits that fit on a chip, then you need to network the chips together. and But you need the entanglement to happen across the uh, the QPUs, the, the quantum processing units. Yeah. So, so that's a kind of networking that when you're taking multiple quantum computers, they're all working together to make one quantum computer. And to get that to work, you need quantum networking. And in fact, actually, today we did this announcement 
for uh, the first step in in that uh, part of the project, which is the there's you know one of three steps required to get that to work. So we announced that. The other aspect is for quantum communications. So that's not about computation. Yeah, this is about um, a secure way to be able to uh, communicate between two different locations, two different quantum computers. And so there's a great deal of interest in that because if quantum computers break encryption, which we think that, you know, at some point it will, then we need to have a different technology. And, you know, uh, potentially that technology is quantum uh, networking using for communication. And in fact, actually, I think the Chinese are a little ahead of us on this right now. You know, they've been busily working on uh, this quantum networking, you know, over some distances in in China cities, and and they've launched a rocket into space and, and you know entangled two qubits, and sure enough, you know, uh, they put one qubit in the rocket and one qubit on here on Earth, and the two still remained entangled. Yeah. So. Um, so these are the kinds of things on the on the communication side, and and just like classical computing, you can kind of think of it, you know, back in the day you had a PC, and in in that PC there was a network card. So there's kind of two problems. One is the computer, which is the yeah. thing we build, and then building the network card. And so we're also working on building the network card. So what AFRL um, Air Force uh, Research Lab needed was two quantum computers. Not They didn't really care so much about how many qubits were in it because they're not using them for uh, computation. But what they want to do is, you know, um, can they network them together? So we will, we're busily working on building those two systems out of Seattle. And you're seeing kind of some of the results now of the work that we're doing to be able to do uh, the networking component. Although this one's for communication, internally we have an interest for computation. Yeah, well, great. Thank you. I look forward to hearing about that as, it, as that project progresses. Very exciting. Peter, let's shift gears and talk about a question that's always of interest to our listeners, which is clients. Um, so in addition to the AFRL deal, I, I read that you signed a contract last June to partner with Quantum Basel, based in Switzerland, to establish a quantum data center in Europe. But also you have a list of notable customers that includes industry giants like Hyundai, Airbus, and GE Research. Can you share with our listeners some of the business problems maybe you're addressing in these and other client engagements? Um, so each one's uh, a little different, although they all share quantum machine learning kind of at their base. And so, um, for instance, with Hyundai, it's um, it's doing things like image recognition. This is um, initially we started with a database of images that were taken from their cars for doing self-driving. And what they wanted us to do is to see how a quantum computer could do machine categorization to be able to identify the object in the image. Um, and then we've, we started off with images, and then we've moved on to um, uh, 3D point you know, LIDAR data and being able to do object recognition with that. Um, that's one example. There's another, there's, we have kind of two different tracks. One is is you know quantum machine learning at Hyundai, and the other one is in chemistry, and so we started a project, for instance, to um, to explore quantum chemistry in looking at uh, the chemistry behind batteries, and so of course that's one of, is one of the initial things that Feynman thought was that you know quantum and chemistry go together well, 
Um, Airbus is a little different. That one is an optimization problem. And what we're doing there is um, trying to optimize loading freight onto uh, commercial aircraft. And you would think that that's something that, um, you know, we've already figured out as, uh, as mankind, but it turns out that's a, you know, extremely expensive computational process. Yeah, We've been working on, you know, on that problem as well. Let's talk a bit about um, partnerships. You mentioned earlier in our conversation, you know, one of the allures of Seattle was other big tech companies and Boeing. But certainly given we're in early days of quantum information science, these kinds of strategic collaborations seem increasingly important to successful engagements. Again, I read that you partner with a diverse array of cloud and channel partners, including, as you mentioned, Google, Amazon Bracket, Azure Quantum, very important Accenture. Tell me about how these collaborations work, you know, both the challenges and the benefits. It's an, in, it's an interesting, so one is for some group of um, clients, partners, um, you know, they're obviously putting our hardware out on their cloud um, and make it available to customers, uh, which, you know, allows people easy access to INQ hardware for, you know, two bucks. You can, you can run your hello world example on one of our quantum computers. Um, so, you know, that was certainly one part of it. The other side is um, uh, we don't have a horse uh, in the race of quantum software tools and SDKs at the moment. And so uh, we wanted to make sure that that kind of the layer above us, we do from the compiler all the way down to the operating system to the firmware, that part of the software stack we do. But in terms of, prog of programming languages, quantum programming languages, we don't have a horse there. So uh, the other part is we work not only with our partners, but even our competitors, um, because everyone wants to make sure that their software stack runs on top of INQ hardware. So we do that as well. And then, you know, we, we have these other uh, partners like Bearing Point and Accenture who are, you know, uh, have deep ties into industry where they're kind of bringing in and educating customers about quantum. In all of them, there's, there is this interesting problem in that, um, you know, they all have large uh, sales forces, but they've all been trained on how to sell classical uh, hardware and they're good at it. Yeah. Uh, and that's the reason they got to be as big as they are. <laughs> so the, the interesting challenge is how do you take a sales team of 20,000 people and start teaching them about quantum? And so, um, so that's, you know, to some degree, the challenge sometimes with these partners. So we're, you know, we do education sessions and, um, you know, working on joint marketing materials and those kinds of things to be able to help the sales forces, you know, kind of uh, be able to sell a quantum uh, process or, or service. So Peter, let's talk about INQ's quantum computing timeline. Again, preparing for our conversation, I found sort of three key points, sort of tipping points, if you will, that 2024, thinking quantum machine learning will emerge as a practical application. 2026, quantum computing maybe makes more inroads into material science specifically. And then 2028, uh, INQ envisioning quantum solutions transforming the field of chemistry. Um, tell, me, tell me how that process is going to go well, we've, we've already seen quite a bit of success in quantum machine learning um, in many of the things that we've done. Either, um, you know, the, the 
the model that you create is more expressive. Another way to think of that is it captures the signal in the data better than a classical system. Um, we've seen that the number of cycles required to create the model is substantially less. Um, and we've seen the amount of data that is needed to train the model is uh, substantially less as well. Uh, and then we have a, you know some new projects that we're working on, which we hope that um, also the sparsity of data, it's possible to create a machine learning models where it wouldn't be possible to do that classically. So there seems to be all these things. Now, in these early projects, you know, they're often with somewhat toy problem sets. Right. And so um, you really do need to have a more powerful quantum computer to really show that you can do this at scale and and start to take on kind of um, the classical machine uh, learning uh, market, which requires better and better hardware. So um, we, you know, we announced AQ uh, 35 and, you know, roughly a year early. And, you know, it's it's AQ35 and AQ64, which will really start to unlock this kind of quantum machine learning market uh, with a little luck. Now, you know, when you start to get into uh, chemistry, it consumes qubits even faster. Yeah. Um, and, the, you know, if you look in between kind of material chemistry and material science versus, say, drug discovery, it seems that... Um, Material science will probably go first. And so these are things like the battery um, things that we're working on with Hyundai or finding, um, you know, new kinds of materials for building um, solar panels or those kinds of things. Last is, is this idea of, of kind of doing computational chemistry for drug discovery. Now, interestingly enough, just recently, you know, we're seeing a great deal of innovation on the quantum algorithmic side. Um, there was a company recently that said that um, they had had an improvement on the chemistry where it used, they thought that prior to this, you would need 1.5 trillion gates and they had converted it, you know, through um, writing a better algorithm down to 410,000 gates. And that's now starting to be in the realm of what, you know, our future systems will be. So maybe with even more progress on the algorithmic side, some of these timeframes will be able to be brought in. Let's talk about workforce. There's always conversations ongoing and in sort of increasing levels of anxiety, I think, around preparing a quantum-ready workforce. So I want to get your take on challenges facing a company like INQ and finding talent. How do you go about recruiting for the company? I assume you're able to leverage relationships with Duke and University of Maryland. Yeah. What could you take on like non-science specific skills that you need to advance the business model at a meta level, right? Yes. Um, so uh, about two thirds of the staff at INQ is, has an advanced degree. Yeah. So um, it's a highly educated uh, workforce. Although much of the things that we're doing now is, is um, you know, more in the software side and also, things like, um, you know, mechanical uh, design and, and those things. So, you yeah. know, it's a much, it's, it's really including a much larger traditional engineering workforce in terms of INQ. Um, when you think about the quantum economy as a group, we need to figure out another programming model that's at a higher levels of abstraction 
we're using quantum gates and you know we haven't really created a you know quantum assembly language let alone quantum basic yet and so um you know i think that there's opportunities for people to um figure those things out and and maybe and this is a bit controversial in the very i mean if if we were to follow the classical world that's what would happen is we would do assembly language next and we would do basic and then somebody would come up with C and C++, the quantum versions of those things. Yeah. But interestingly enough now um, with things like Copilot and, and other automatic code generators, maybe we don't go do, you know, uh, quantum basic. Maybe it's okay to stay uh, in some of these early um, states because maybe we're not going to do programming the old-fashioned way. Maybe there's automatic code generation, and it can deal with this. Um, yeah. So I, I think these are the things in the next couple of years that, that different tracks to be able to do it. Clearly, we need to do that so that we can make it so that you know line of business application developers can in inside corporations can figure out how to use a quantum computer without having to have a PhD in quantum physics. Yeah. What again? What about sort of ancillary and adjacent skill sets like attracting people with PR and marketing skills, people who are into business development, people who want to have policy and regulatory conversations, people who are into UX design. I mean, how people oh, yeah, touch no, we, and interact with your stuff. You know. Yeah, we and we employ all of those in, in as part of this process. Um, yeah, every aspect of of what you said is required. You know, we. We work with governments to figure out policy. So we have people that do that. You know, most of what, it's a little funny, most of what we do is actually classical. So um, the quantum piece of it is the processor itself. The rest of it's all classical hardware. So you have the same kind of, of issues like, well, I need a UX to be able to look at a dashboard to figure out how the quantum computer is working, right, that day. Yeah. So there's a you know, a small group of people who are working on that. They're classical software engineers. Yeah. Um, I just, even though, you know, we write an operating system in a classical language, Yeah, which then the operating system is run, runs the hardware for the quantum computer, but it's a classical operating system. Yeah. Well, I just always like to want to have a conversation with someone like you to reinforce for our listeners the fact that you don't have to have a PhD in physics to work at a terrific company like INQ, that there's a range of opportunities uh, across a you know broad set of skills to help make it go, help make it run, help well, make it e successful. Even down to the level, to be honest, um, you know, if if you know, kind of not directly my workforce, but indirectly, is you know, we for the last couple of years we built out the the College Park building. It was an abandoned warehouse when we got it. So we started a large construction project there, and that um, employed the trades. And we've just spent the last year building out, you know, um, you know, this new hundred thousand square foot facility. So we've had tens of millions of dollars invested in in construction, and so you know that's employing the trades as well. And I have a project right now over at uh, Basel to build out, um, you know, the data center space for there. And again, employing, you know, construction people and architects and all the rest, even though it's all part of quantum. So, yeah. you know, all these things, I guess, you know, it's lifting, lo lifting lots of boats. 
if yeah, you know the yeah the broader implications for workforce and economic uh, prosperity of quantum exactly right so peter we've come to the end and i always like to conclude by asking my guests to share their personal vision you know wax philosophic look into your crystal ball give give our listeners your take on where sort of quantum computing or quantum writ large might be in three to five to 10 years. And then, you know, what kind of impact do you think it's going to have more broadly on how we live and work? I think that um, if we're successful, um, that, you know, we have the potential, and this is a little bold, but I think you have to be bold <laughs> to get into yeah. some of this deep, deep tech stuff, um, that, that INQ has the potential to be NVIDIA, Cisco, and open AI all in one. Cool. And so, um, and you know, and you'll see us kind of move into those kinds of markets in the coming years. Um, and so I, you know, my, as you mentioned, one of the things that I joined the company for was because of AI. And because I thought that, um, that actually human intelligence is probably quantum. And so, uh, and also I needed you know, I started off with 8K of memory, and I knew that for this problem set of AGI that I was going to need a bigger and better machine. So I'm kind of like, um, I guess I'm like Hair Club of, of America. I'm not, just a, I'm not just the president, but I'm also a, a, a user, so to speak. So, yeah. um, so you know, I, I, want, I wanted in, to build this machine. I needed to build this machine to be able to do the thing that I really wanted to do, which was the you know, the NLP and the AGI stuff. Yeah. And so that is where I hope. And, you know, and I think if, if we were successful, then, uh, you know, yes, it's going to impact, you know, the TAM, the total addressable market for this is, is infinite. I mean, it's, it's really just talking about the next generation of quantum uh, of, mich of computers. And, and I'll put it to you too, just as an interesting, maybe a kind of endpoint which is today we're seeing AI, you know, starting to consume significant uh, percentage of total compute power. And it seems to have a, you know, appetite to consume compute resources at an exponential rate. And so we've gotten to this funny place where Moore's law hasn't come to an end, but instead Moore's law is no longer meeting our demand for computational resources. And so it's a funny thing, which is if quantum computing didn't work for some reason, whatever it is, the question would be, what would we do to be able to do the next 10x in a large language model? Hmm. Hmm. Because, you know, you, you hear people yeah. like Sam Altman who's saying we need to increase the energy output of the world so we can build more classical data centers. But I don't think that, that that will never scale to the way that we need it to in the future. Yeah. And so it's a little, you know, it's a different way to think of it. Quantum has to work because I just don't know what, you know, we've, we've just run out of classical uh, ability to scale. We would need to start producing billions of GPUs and, you know, that's probably not going to happen. Well, Peter, it's been great speaking with you. Marvin Minsky would be proud for sure of your passion, carrying the torch forward here for advancing AI. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for taking the time to speak with me today. Well, thank you. And thanks for having me on today. I want to invite listeners to follow you and the company on LinkedIn. Uh, point them to the website, inq.com. 
You have uh, social media, I on Q underscore Inc on X, formerly Twitter, and also content on YouTube. So thanks again, Peter, for joining me today. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please share this podcast on social media channels to increase the impact of my conversation with Peter. Listen to my other podcast episodes if you haven't already. And please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. This has been a production of Inside Quantum Technology. You've been listening to the Quantum Tech Pod, brought to you by Inside Quantum Technology. For more information on this episode or other topics relating to quantum technology, visit InsideQuantumTechnology.com.